Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Western leaders step up their response to Russia's annexation of Crimea, what will Vladimir Putin do next? And what can the West do about it? And we ask why Turkey's Prime Minister banned Twitter ahead of this weekend's municipal elections. But we begin with Malaysia Airlines flight MH370, which disappeared on the 8th of March as it flew from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. There were 239 people on board, two-thirds of whom were Chinese nationals. This week, Malaysia said the aircraft had crashed into the southern Indian Ocean and that all those on board were dead. Some of the families of the missing passengers received the news by text message, and the announcement provoked angry scenes in Beijing, where dozens of the relatives protested outside the Malaysian embassy, accusing the authorities of Kuala Lumpur of lying about the fate of the missing aircraft. We're joined now from Beijing by our Asia correspondent Clifford Coonan, who's been reporting on the almost three-week-long search for the aircraft. Clifford, nobody has yet recovered any of the wreckage of the aircraft. So how do the Malaysian authorities know that it crashed into the Indian Ocean? Well, one, one characteristic of this, of this whole event has been the kind of murkiness surrounding where the information about uh, the, the possible crash, uh, the now-believed crash, uh, is coming from. And um, they've been using radar readings from various... Um, from various sources, and it's believed that that's where they got them from. But um, one of the reasons why everyone is so angry about it is that the, the Malaysians haven't really explained exactly where they're getting this from, and they've just kind of delivered a fait accompli saying that, we're very sorry to say, but the plane has crashed in the southern Indian Ocean, and, um, and uh, everyone, no one has survived the incident. Are we any closer, by the way, to working out what actually happened to the flight once it took off from Kuala Lumpur? We're not. I mean, this is a long way away from um, from any sort of trajectory the flight would have normally taken. Um, we know what, possibly we know what happened, but we still don't know how and we don't know who was behind it or if if it was a hijacking, if it was a suicide by the pilot, as there's been some conjecture. Um, we still don't really know anything more than the fact that what the Malaysians are saying now is that, 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 the, uh, that the plane has crashed and everyone has been lost. So we're still trying to work out, we're still waiting for any information. And obviously to get that, they're going to need to find some of the wreckage to to work out um, possibly what happened. The families of the missing Chinese passengers have been expressing a great deal of anger about the progress of the search and rescue operation. What exactly is the focus of their criticism? Well, there was a couple of issues. I mean, basically they've been, um, they haven't been treated well by the Malaysian government as far as they're concerned. Um, today they took to the streets and they're wearing T-shirts saying they're, they're chanting them, the Malaysian government has cheated us and Malaysia return our relatives. And um, they sort of feel that, um, that they've been kept in the dark throughout this whole, this whole event. And um, they want to know more about what has happened and um, what sort of measures are being taken to, to, to actually find the wreckage. And, um, and the Chinese government also shares their anger. So it's been more than just... Uh, and just angry relatives. I mean, obviously, relatives are going to be very upset about what's happened. Um, but it's more than just um, than just distraught relatives. This is uh, taking on a new significance. Now, this whole operation uh, obviously has involved the cooperation of a number of countries in the region, including Malaysia, uh, China, and uh, notably Australia, as well as many further afield, including the United States. How well have they all worked together? Um, well, it's been very interesting. I mean, that it, it, it's been taken on a kind of a geopolitical significance in the way that, um, for example, the Australians and the Chinese have cooperated very well in this. Um, New Zealand, the U.S., Japan, South Korea—they've they've all sort of been assisting in the search. Uh, India has offered to join in the search and recovery operation. Um, 
basically the two main countries involved in it, however, um, China and Malaysia, um, are the two who haven't cooperated well and from the start. Uh, the, the Chinese, as, as we've been saying, just feel just feel left out and, and they feel like the, the Malaysians haven't haven't handled it as competently as they could have. And, and the Malaysians have been, it, it certainly looks like they've been a little bit dismissive as far as the, as far as the Chinese are concerned. If we accept that the wreckage in the southern Indian Ocean is indeed that of this aircraft, what's the next step or the next stages in trying to resolve this mystery? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, we still don't really know. I mean, it's still some people were saying today that you know this could be a you know the body of a whale. It could be it could be anything. You know, it's very difficult to make take measurements from these sort of readings. But presuming that um, that the reports coming in are uh, are about to be verified. Um, the next step will be seeing how they get the wreckage up. It's going to be an extremely difficult operation. It's in this part of uh, of the ocean that's incredibly remote. It's 2,500 kilometers southwest of Perth in Australia, um, in a place near the Roaring Forties, which is these huge waves and a lot of stormy weather. So it's it's not going to be an easy uh, recovery operation. Um, but basically, the Australians who seem to be taking the lead on on this element of the operation say. Now things are going to move towards recovery, and there'll be an effort to try and try and recover um, what's what's left. And the key, of course, is always going to be the, to see things like the black box, the so-called black box, the voice recorder, which has information about uh, what happened. But the battery on that is running out. Um, they normally have a lifespan of about 30 days, so it's um, it's still going to be an extremely difficult uh, recovery operation. Clifford Coonan in Beijing, thank you. U.S. President Barack Obama flew to The Hague this week to meet other leaders from the Group of Seven leading industrialized nations. It was supposed to be a meeting of the Group of Eight, which includes Russia. But Russia was suspended in response to its annexation of Crimea from Ukraine. Russia has consolidated its grip on the Crimean Peninsula in recent days, driving Ukrainian forces from their bases, capturing warships and submarines, and introducing the ruble in place of the Ukrainian currency. Meanwhile, both the United States and the European Union have imposed economic sanctions on Russia, targeting members of President Vladimir Putin's inner circle and warning of tougher action if Russia moves further into Ukraine or threatens any more of its neighbours. To discuss the situation in Ukraine and the diplomatic standoff, I'm joined from Kiev by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin, from The Hague by European correspondent Suzanne Lynch and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Paddy Smith. Dan, the Ukrainian forces in Crimea have put up little or no resistance to their Russian counterparts. How has this been viewed in Ukraine? Uh, it's been viewed really in two ways. Um, people take a very, very realistic attitude to um, the fact that Ukrainian forces in Crimea had absolutely no chance of putting up a fight really against against the might of the Russian army. So. Initially, people did accept the fact that perhaps it was better to not put up a fight, to not provoke uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin anymore, and obviously not to cause any casualties. But as time's gone on, I mean, this, uh, this siege in, in uh, Crimea has gone on for weeks now. And only now, only yesterday, did the Ukrainian troops in Crimea receive a clear order from the president, the acting president here in Kiev, to withdraw from the peninsula. So as time's gone on, it's been clear that Ukraine couldn't really do anything in terms of resisting Russia, but the troops there didn't know what to do. They were left in a kind of limbo without clear orders, um, under great pressure from the Russian troops and from their local uh, militia allies. And as it's turned out now over the last few days, uh, 
all the bases have been taken over, the ships have been taken over, and Ukrainian troops have basically been forced to leave their bases in humiliation, really. And they're very annoyed that, uh, you know, if, if this was what it was going to come to, why didn't we do it earlier? Why didn't you give us a chance to get out with some dignity? Why didn't you give us a chance to get out, perhaps with our weapons and some of our armored vehicles intact uh, and still in our possession? Um, so there's been a feeling of... of um, uh, of, of inaction and uh, a kind of um, confusion, really, from this provisional government here in Kiev. Uh, that feeling of, of dissatisfaction has led to um, lots, of, lots of complaints on the streets, but also in Parliament. And we've actually seen today, as a result of this, um, the Defence Minister Igor Tenyuk um, giving his resignation and Parliament accepting his resignation and a new Defence Minister being put in place. Now, whatever about accepting that Crimea is lost, and as you say, it, it was quite clear from early on that uh, the Ukrainian forces had no option but essentially to uh, uh, to give in. Russian troops have been exercising close to the border with eastern Ukraine, and I'm wondering how anxious the Ukrainians are that Crimea could not be the end of this, but actually could be the start of a greater operation on the part of the Russians in the east of the country. The Ukrainians are extremely anxious. Uh, they've seen a series of, of very large military exercises by the Russians just on the other side of their border, uh, on Ukraine's eastern border. Uh, Russia today has started major exercises in Siberia with rocket forces, much much uh, further away, obviously, than, um, than, than the border area, but still worrying for Ukraine. It seems like the Russian military is being, being put on alert for some reason. Um, we've had warnings from the United States. We've had warnings from NATO. We've had warnings from uh, individual European Union states that there is a very worrying buildup of, of uh, Russian forces close to the border. Um, we've also seen in recent weeks um, occasionally violent demonstrations in uh, largely ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking cities in Ukraine, but close to the Russian border. Uh, Kiev says that these are the, the trouble there is being stirred up by agents sent over the border from Russia to stir up an anti-Ukrainian and a pro-Russian feeling. So there is great fear. Uh, Ukraine is trying to mobilize uh, as many of its forces as it can. It has called up 40,000 reservists, 20,000 for the armed forces, 20,000 for a new National Guard. Um, but at the same time, um, it it's, would be massively um, overmatched by the Russians. It would be outnumbered, it would be outgunned. Uh, and if it came to a conflict, again, Ukraine would, uh, would not really have any chance of defending itself. In his speech to the Russian parliament, the Duma, last week, Putin justified the annexation of Crimea on the basis that he was protecting ethnic Russians and Russian speakers who found themselves outside Russia after the breakup of the Soviet Union. What other territories on Russia's borders could be targets of a doctrine like that? Well, there is certainly, I mean, we could go back initially to, um, to 2008 even when, when Russia pushed forces into Georgia um, on the, uh, to protect Russian speakers in, and Russian citizens in the Georgian region of South Ossetia. That was the reason Putin gave for, for going into Georgia. Uh, he said the same thing with Crimea. He said that Russian uh, speakers and Russian citizens were in danger from nationalists who backed the new government in Kiev. Uh, looking further afield, the Baltic states are very, very worried by developments in Ukraine, um, particularly Estonia and Latvia. They have large uh, Russian minorities. And uh, Moscow has often complained that uh, their rights are abused in terms of language, in terms of, of uh, citizenship rights, and so on. 
so the Baltic states are very worried. Uh, if we look down towards Moldova, we have um, a separatist region there called Transnistria, which is uh, uh, the, the population there are Russian-speaking Slavs. Uh, they broke away from the Moldovan government in the early 90s. Um, and there is also, uh, we're also hearing increasing calls from them for Russian protection. Um, the speaker of the local parliament even called for annexation by Russia in recent days. So there are areas on uh, around Ukraine's borders um, and closer to the European Union where there are large Russian-speaking minorities that may at some point appeal for Kremlin help and which are coming under countries that are coming under increasing pressure uh, and are increasingly worried by Putin's claim to be the defender of all Russian speakers around Europe now. Dan, the government in Kiev uh, has signed an association agreement now with the European Union and there have been declarations of solidarity not only from Europe but from the United States. Are the authorities in Kiev reassured by these declarations? They're not greatly reassured. Um, Certainly they are very keen to, to have the political backing, as much political backing as possible from the West, as much financial backing. The government is basically, uh, is basically bankrupt. The country is bankrupt. And officials here say that um, the previous uh, government, led by Viktor Yanukovych, the president, took uh, tens of billions of euros out of the country. So they, the country needs financial help from the West. In terms of military support, um, there is a real sense of bitterness here that uh, looking back to 1994, when Ukraine gave up what was at the time the, the third largest nuclear arsenal uh, in the world, um, the Soviet weapons that were, that were left here after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine gave those up in return for security guarantees, guarantees of uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty from the United States, from Great Britain, and from Russia. Um, obviously, Russia has now taken a chunk of, uh, of Ukrainian territory. It's taken Crimea. And the United States and Great Britain have not been able to, um, to uh, follow through with those assurances that they made back in 1994. There's been talk from some, um, some congressmen in, in the United States that perhaps some military aid of some sort, even extending perhaps to small arms, should be offered to Ukraine. Um, but there isn't a great sense of reassurance. And certainly the Kiev government knows that Europe is hugely dependent on Russia for, for its energy and has all kinds of trade links and financial links that European governments are not willing to, uh, are probably not willing to sever for the sake of Ukraine. So there isn't a great sense of reassurance from any of the rhetoric that uh, Ukraine's hearing from the United States or from the European Union at the moment. Paddy Smith, Putin's speech to the Duma set off alarm bells in Western capitals, and some people were comparing his language with that of Adolf Hitler before the Anschluss of Austria and the German march into the Sudetenland in 1938. Should we be worried? Well, uh, what, what will have worried uh, Ukrainians and Europeans too was that, that, that apart from his aspirations for Crimea, um, Putin made it quite clear that he regarded Kiev as part of Russia. Um, but I think there's, there's an interesting question about what is Putin playing at? And is this part of a, a longer-term strategic uh, move by Putin or is this a piece of ad hocery on Putin's part? And some commentators in recent days have been saying, well, actually, Putin is, is winging it. And, and we shouldn't really be uh, imagining that, it, that this is part of a long, uh, drawn-out strategy of, of enveloping the Ukraine and, the, um, uh, and, and Moldova, for example. But on the other hand, everybody has to prepare for the worst. 
The other thing that will have concerned the the Europeans is is the arguments about secession and the the idea that simply because a group of people in, in the Crimea voted for secession, they should be automatically entitled to it. But I thought we uh, our general view is that we believe in self-determination and there are various referendums going on uh, or planned throughout Europe. Certainly there's one planned for Scotland. There's, uh, a, there's a plan, one for Scotland, which has the backing of the British government, not secession, but the holding of the referendum. There are other referendums uh, going on. Uh, there's one. There was one in in Venice uh, uh, last week, which resulted in an 86 percent vote for secession by the province of Veneto. Now uh, that was completely unofficial, and there is no way that the Italian government is going to do anything, even acknowledge that that vote took place. There is potentially a Catalan referendum, unofficial referendum, organised by the Catalans themselves. Uh, and the Spanish government is saying that they won't have anything to do with it. The problem is, who defines what group should vote for secession? And and that is an extremely complicated thing. In the north of Ireland, we see, you know, uh, the, the question has been long debated. Do the unionists community, for example, have a, a right to, to secede? Did they have a right back in 1922? Uh, should they have a right if there's a referendum in, in a couple of years' time on Irish unity and, and a majority votes for unity? But... Four provinces, four four counties say they want to stay Brit British. That's that's a really difficult problem for all of the European countries and for the idea of self determination. Uh, Suzanne Lynch, uh, the European response to the Euro Ukrainian crisis seemed at first to be somewhat hesitant, but there seems to have been some toughening of resolve in recent days. Yes, I think the the speech by uh, Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin really did change things. Um, and we saw a kind of toughening of response since then, um, mainly uh, crystallizing around the summit of EU leaders uh, that took place last week. This had been scheduled anyway, but it, it took place on Thursday and Friday. And I think with the, with the almost the visual uh, impact of, of leaders gathering in Brussels, they were under pressure uh, to do more in terms of their response. But where do the fault lines lie? I mean, clearly those countries that border Russia are are, are going to be more gung-ho in terms of tougher action. But who are the stragglers or who are the foot-draggers? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the this is the issue. If if you compare, for example, the EU's response to the U, U.S., um, obviously we're talking about twenty eight countries who have all got a right to shape and to have their own foreign policy. So, a country like Ireland, which is neutral, and then you've got a country like like Italy or, or Germany. In this particular case, obviously the, um, the the countries to the east have particular ties and, and particular dependencies on Russia. But it, it's a bit more complex than that. You've also got uh, countries like the UK, for example, that have a lot of uh, Russian money in London. Um, we saw France last week. Um, it has had already signed a very controversial deal to supply military um, warships to Russia and whether or not it's going to suspend those. So it does affect countries in different ways. So this, this, this idea that a response, an economic response, would have an unequal impact on different countries has been, um, has been holding back the EU from, from, from going further in terms of their sanctions. Now, the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, has made clear that uh, he and Moscow don't really care about being suspended from the G8. What do you think it would take for the Europeans to actually step up their sanctions? Yeah, well, I mean, last, yesterday, this week they, they moved to effectively suspend Russia from, from the G8. Um, and it, it is significant. They've been a member since 1998, um, despite uh, Lavrov shrugging it off. 
Um, what seems to be suggested from officials here in The Hague that really what they're looking at now is further incursion into eastern or, or southern Ukraine. This seems to be the next trigger point which would see uh, the EU and US move to deeper sanctions, both broader sanctions, economic and, and trade sanctions, rather than against individuals. Um, whether, I mean, the other issue would be is further de-escalation within Crimea, but really this is what seems to be on the table. It's this further incursion into these other parts of Ukraine, and, and there are worries about the build-up of, of Russian troops along the borders of the east and west of Ukraine. Paddy Smith, what do you think is Putin's endgame in Ukraine? Is he hoping for a federal state that would enshrine Russian influence there? It does depend really on how on what you believe or his, his long-term intentions, as I, as I was saying, and whether or not he's, he's uh, got a long-term uh, strategy. But um, he has said uh, that he has no desire to take, send troops into, into eastern Crimea and uh, um, many of the, uh, into eastern Ukraine, and many of the eastern Ukrainian demonstrators and uh, business representatives have talked about how actually they're not interested in in a Russian invasion and and um, they're not interested in becoming part of Russia. They want to be to remain part of the Ukraine, but they want greater autonomy and they would like federal uh, structures established. You, the the Russians have also pressed this internationally. So if we take them at face value, yes, and it would seem to be a a, a line uh, of argument that will not run them into further sanctions problems. Uh, it 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 would allow a great deal of power uh, to their their supporters in eastern uh, Ukraine, but not require uh, an intervention which would be very costly diplomatically. And, and uh, Dan McLaughlin was talking earlier about the uh, potential threat to Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, but those states are not only members of the European Union but also members of NATO. So any Russian move against them would trigger an automatic response. But how far do you think uh, the Europeans or indeed NATO would be prepared to go in defence, say, of Moldova? I think Moldova is very like the Ukraine in, in, in those terms. I think, I think uh, uh, it, it, would not, it would trigger certainly some more sanctions, but you're not going to see a military response on the part of, of NATO to uh, um, a Russian intervention in, in Moldova. I, I don't actually think that the Russians intend uh, to move into Moldova. I, I think that, that it, it doesn't, it, there is no crisis there that would precipitate a, a move or provocation or, or the like. Um, I, I think that they're more likely to, to say, well, we'd wait and see if that's for another day and and um, that they're not, going to, they're not going to move on Moldova. Finally, Suzanne, uh, Europe tends to integrate when it, uh, it, it confronts a crisis. Has this crisis, or do you think it's likely to have any impact in terms of the further development of the common European foreign and security policy? Um, yeah, I mean, some some people have been saying in Europe, um, ironically, isn't it great that Ukraine didn't join NATO um, a while ago when, when it was on the table because NATO would would, would have had to had to act. Um, but just, just what you're saying there, I mean, I think that the meeting this week between Obama and um, the Secretary General of NATO could be significant in, in in terms of what we see about committing. Um, you know, even in principle, further troops to those eastern those eastern countries in in Europe. Um, there there there's really strong concerns in those countries like Latvia and Estonia, um, who who are seeing you know Russian ships in the Baltic Sea and this kind of thing, and and, and they're looking for 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 further help. So I think we will see indications here that we will see some kind of um some kind of promise uh, to to increase 
um, resources um, in terms of that end. But I think generally in terms of Europe, what's been interesting here is the German uh, role in all this. Traditionally, Germany takes a back seat in, in foreign affairs and leaves it to, to Britain and France, usually. But here, Germany finds itself um, having to take a position, and it has, of course, been quite cautious in terms of its um, of its relationship uh, with Russia. This is also significant in terms of its uh, if its role in, in the G7. Germany was scheduled to take over um, as host of the, of the G8 next year. Um, so, so where Germany, uh, how Germany plays its cards in the next few weeks, um, is going to be very important. Suzanne Lynch in The Hague, Dan McLaughlin in Kiev, and Paddy Smith, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Turkey votes in municipal elections on Saturday amid mounting scandals surrounding Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his moderate Islamist Justice and Development Party, or AKP. In recent days, Erdogan has banned Twitter in Turkey, triggering a public spat with the country's president, Abdullah Gül. The ban hasn't worked because most Turkish Twitter users have worked out how to get around it, but it highlights the sense of siege surrounding the Prime Minister, since a corruption scandal involving his associates and even his own family broke in December. To find out what's going on, I'm joined now from Istanbul by Stephen Starr, and Paddy Smith is still with me in studio. Stephen, what prompted Erdogan to ban Twitter? I think it's been a accumulation of a number of, of, of issues. Uh, chief amongst them has been the um, release of a series of recordings, allegedly of Erdogan speaking to his son, talking about hiding very large sums of money. Um, another recording, allegedly, of Erdogan speaking to the head of a top media organization, um, asking him to uh, stop a, a, an interview with a political candidate opposing Erdogan. Um, these releases have been coming out over Twitter over in, in the evening time, which is kind of the height, the height of Twitter use in, in Turkey um, over the last number of weeks. And, um, you know, this is, this is essentially the main issue. Erdogan, I think, is, feels most threatened um, by these releases. Um, we don't know who is responsible for these, but we can assume, I guess, and many analysts say at least that um, there are elements that support Gulan. And, um, and uh, for, you know, for the most part, um, you know, and we're expecting actually to, to, to see more um, release, releases of, of similar such recordings over the coming weeks and um, ahead of the presidential election next August. Now, you mentioned Gulan, so maybe you could just take us back to the start of this corruption scandal in December and what it's all about and explain the rivalry between Gulan and uh, Erdogan. So Erdogan and uh, Fatullah Gulan, who is a Pennsylvania-based uh, um, Islamic cleric, share a lot of Islamic uh, principles and worldviews, I think it's right to say. Um, in November, Erdogan decided that he would like to close a number of schools run by uh, Gulan associates. Um, Erdogan made a point in, in the media of talking about how you know young girls and boys are able to live together, um, we can't be responsible, we the state, and that we don't know what these uh, these young people are getting up to. Um, that was November. That obviously greatly um, enraged the, uh, the uh, Gulan movement and um, his followers. Uh, and then the next month, obviously, in December, we had this the breaking of this, uh, an investigation into a number of uh, leading businessmen, including a number and also a number of uh, ministers, three of whom resigned shortly after the scandal broke in mid-December. Uh, um, shortly after that, again, the, uh, the AK party, Erdogan as uh, principal-in-chief, I suppose, um, announced that um, a number of, of judges and prosecutors would be 
uh, moved around in their jobs in various parts of the country. The police chief of Istanbul was fired and uh, over actually counting until now, we're talking over 2000 police uh, officers believed to have been involved in the investigation have been either fired or moved to um, to, to other posts. So really what you're, what you're looking at here is a is a growth in the kind of um, power, I guess, or a power struggle essentially between Erdogan and Gulen and his followers. Um, and what is interesting about this is that uh, they were quite close uh, interlocutors um, over the past 10 to 12 years when Erdogan viewed the chief, um, his chief rival as the, the, Turkish media, the, the Turkish military. Now, the, the Gulen movement appears, as you mentioned, to have been very strong in the, the police, in parts of the judiciary, and obviously in education and elements of business. How big a threat is this movement and Gulen himself to Erdogan? You know, I think I think on the ground it's quite a considerable threat. I think in terms of of everyday activities and actions, in terms of the ability of police to um, launch investigations and to arrest um, people close to Erdogan and to put a, a spotlight on Erdogan, his family and the business leaders um, that are close to him. I think and people tell me here, at least experts and analysts and and, and journalists tell me here in Turkey that how that plays out at the polls is something quite different. So you might not see that translating to a huge drop in support for Erdogan um, at the polls at the at local elections this weekend. So, you know, I guess in terms of, of, of structurally, in terms of kind of, uh, you know, in, uh, the positions in, in the judiciary, in leading media, in some leading media organizations, in some uh, business ventures also, that uh, that will trickle down over the coming uh, weeks, uh, months and years, I think. But at the polls, it's a very different story, I think. Before the corruption scandal, the biggest threat to Erdogan appeared to be coming from the youthful protest that started in Istanbul and in Gezi Park. What happened to that protest movement? Well, interesting enough, it's we've, we've seen low-level protests here on a weekly basis, most weekends, um, every week pretty much since last June, since the Gezi Park protest last June. In the immediate aftermath, of the protests in Gezi Park, you had uh, hundreds of people decamp to other parks around Istanbul and, and other major cities um, of Turkey. As winter came in, many people uh, left these parks. Um, but what you know, what you're seeing right now, you're seeing a lot of uh, public protests at football games here. Um, you know, a lot of protests on on Twitter and, and similar uh, social media organizations. Um, so what you're, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's there. It's not appearing so much in the international media, um, but it's, it's certainly something that, um, that uh, particularly uh, urbanites um, and Turks are, are concerned with. And what we have, we found that what happened last November is, was the establishment of the Gezi party uh, based broadly on the principles of uh, the people who, who, uh, who, who flocked to the park um, last summer in, in Istanbul. Uh, Paddy Smith, for a number of years, Turkey seemed not only to be a rising economic power, but also an emerging regional leader. But in recent months, Erdogan's allies in Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood have lost power through a coup. And he also seems to have backed the losing side in Syria's civil war. What went wrong for Erdogan in the region? 
Well, I think it, it, it's premature to write him off. I think I think what you've got to look at the Turkish economy is, is still thriving. Uh, as Stephen said, uh, politically, Erdogan, um, the presidential elections looming, that 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 the AKP will still do uh, very well. But he does certainly appear to have feet of clay. The aftermath of the Arab Spring saw uh, the election of uh, of or well, the coming to power. Uh, of important allies of uh, Erdogan's in the in Muslim uh, Brotherhood parties in Egypt and uh, Tunisia. And this seemed to reinforce his standing in, in Western eyes. He's an acceptable uh, an acceptable form of, of Islam for, for many uh, Westerners. But there's been a shift, as uh, even said, uh, in the dynamics of, of Turkish politics, notably from within his own uh, party, where most of the Gulen supporters uh, are, are, are based. And he, he's in uh, serious trouble. He's still, he's still rallying very large crowds in, in Turkey. And uh, Turkey is, of course, an important member of NATO, but it's been trying for years uh, to join the European Union. But that bid has faced a lot of resistance over decades. How are Erdogan's latest troubles and what's perceived to be a move towards authoritarianism, how is that likely to affect that process? Well, it it will reinforce the, the, the hand of those like Germany who, who really don't want to see uh, Turkey joining soon. And there isn't any prospect to Turkey joining soon. It slows down the uh, the accession process. And uh, uh, certainly the Twitter ban, for example, I, I think the, we will see uh, consequences in, in terms of the European relationship. Uh, Stephen, finally, uh, that Twitter ban appears to have been something of a damn squib. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the Records show that uh, Twitter usage in Turkey in the immediate aftermath of the ban doubled for a number of hours. Um, since then, however, I've read some reports saying, suggesting at least that um, the actual number of, of Turkish language tweets coming out of the country have, re- have reduced um, compared to kind of pre-Twitter ban uh, figures. But it is certainly it is it is um, united um, opponents of the, the of the of Erdogan specifically against them. We're, we're looking at a very, very important week coming up here. Uh, this weekend is, is going to be critical. It's a lot of these political issues are going to be played out on Twitter and Facebook. A lot of people will look to these social media organi- websites to, um, to, to see what's happening, to see what turnout will be like at polls at the weekend and, and that. So it's, um, you know, and we also have the, the, the fact that Turkey's president, Abdullah Gul, uh, who was seen as a uh, a, a kind of a make-weight kind of a, a figure in the AK party has immediately come out and said um, after the ban that you know I don't expect this to last. It should. It's wrong, and that um, and that it should it should change soon. But um, you know, reigning in Erdogan right now when he's <clears throat> excuse me when he when he is able to speak in front of uh, two hundred thousand people as he did in Istanbul last Sunday. Um, you know, it would be a difficult thing, I think. He uh, he got 200,000 people in Istanbul, but the mayoral election in Istanbul appears to be some kind of a threat to him. Is that right? It could be, yeah. I mean, the, the, the CHB, the opposition, I mean, opposition party, is um, running with um, a, a young, new uh, face of politics, uh, Mustafa Sarigul. Um, he seems to be uh, doing quite well at polls, a lot of people are suggesting that um, the incumbent mayor of Istanbul has been there for a long time. Um, also, of course, you have the issues around a number of construction projects here in Istanbul, uh, very controversial issues, and that uh, they see the, the CHP's candidate, uh, Sarigul, 
as uh, as someone who can who can listen to Istanbul is, I think, is is the main issue. But at the same time, and um, the CHP has been seen largely across the country as a reactionary uh, political force. They seldom uh, present um, proper economic plans for the country. And uh, to that end, I think, you know, a lot of people see them as, as simply a party that, the, that, that suggests uh, doing things or doing whatever the AK party uh, uh, does not want to do, basically. Stephen Starr in Istanbul and Patty Smith here in Dublin. Thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from the Irish Times, from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>